If you have your copy of God's Word, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 in the New Testament. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, then we'll have the uh, references on the screen tonight. We're in a series called The Healthy Church. A couple weeks ago, we started this series in Galatians chapter 6. And we, we said the healthy church is a church that cares for one another. If you weren't able to hear that message, I would challenge you. Go back and listen to that exposition of, of Galatians 1, 1 through 10. And we walk through those verses because it shows us what it looks like to be a caring church. We bear one another's burdens. We restore one another in gentleness and in, and in meekness. We, we share our resources gen- generously with, with one another. And, um, we just do good. We look for opportunities to care for each other. Tonight, um, I'm going to be preaching about humility and harmony. Those two things. And how they go hand in hand in helping us to be a healthy church or a more healthy church than maybe we already are. Humility and harmony. At Harmony Baptist Church, the pastor called the deacons meeting. We need to lay new carpet in the auditorium and I want your input, the pastor said. Now I'm thankful I don't have to moan and groan when I go to the deacons, by the way. That's not the spirit of our men nor their wives, but this is a fictional story. The men begin to discuss the ins and outs of carpeting, the color. Should it be traditional red or maybe a change to a nice blue? Should it be a cut pile or a loop? One wanted a shag. How much should we spend? One deacon had a brother-in-law that knew a guy that could get carpet at a huge discount. Others wanted to shop around for different prices. One thought they should get the most expensive because it would last longer. One thought they should get the cheapest, well, because he was simply cheap. One liked the old carpet. It had been on the floor for 24 years and there's no need to change. We could take that money and do something else like replace the baptistry heater. One didn't like carpet at all and was adamant about tiling the floor because of his allergies. In the end, they came to an agreement and the wheels were set in motion to purchase new carpeting. So the deacons went home and they faced their sweet wives. What was your meeting about? All the wives asked their husbands, except the cheap one who was still single. (coughs) Uh, Just just carpet, the men replied. The wives probed further. What about carpet? Oh, the men said, we're, we're going to buy new carpet for the auditorium. Really, all the wives said in unison as they all looked at their husbands with their eyebrows raised. What kind of carpet, dear? What do you mean? Carpet is carpet, the men said a little frustrated. Well, what color is it? What kind is it? How much is it? Where are you buying it? Who's going to install it, said the wives with their voices raised slightly. Well, those are decisions for the pastor and the deacons. All the men said with an air of finality. Phones began to ring at the homes of the deacons as all the deacons' wives discussed carpeting with each other. When they had fully discussed the issue, they called other wives in the church. And soon all the church ladies knew about the deacons' meeting and the new carpet. Not only did they know, but it was evident that certain battle lines had been drawn. There were traditionalists who wanted to maintain red carpet. There were the progressives who thought a change would be nice, perhaps blue shag. 
There were the penny pinchers whose only concern was the price. There were the frugal who, who wanted to be certain that the new carpet lasts another 24 years. And there were those who thought the old carpet was fine, thank you. And the stains were hardly noticeable. One wanted no carpet at all because her husband had severe allergies, you know. And all kinds of microscopic monsters live in carpet. At least that's what she read on Facebook. In the end, Harmony Baptist Church didn't buy new carpet. Nor did it buy a new baptistry heater because no one ever got baptized. Nor did it buy new Sunday school material because new people never came. Nor did it buy new cribs for the nursery because young couples didn't stay. Nor did it buy a new piano or a new bus, a new van, a new sound system or anything else because there was no harmony at Harmony Baptist Church. The sad truth is that too many times stories like the fictional Harmony Baptist Church are all too real. And churches are going through the motions of having church, but their lack of unity has caused them to have little or no impact on the community for Christ. Most of the time, the thing over which they disagree has little to do with doctrine, our theology, our morality, and more to do with personal preferences, personal feelings, and personal opinions. My greatest fear, listen, as the pastor of this church, is that our effectiveness with the gospel out there will be hindered because we are unable to live out the gospel toward each other in here. See, I don't want a lack of harmony inside this place to keep us from helping people find and follow Jesus outside of this place. You say, Pastor, why are you preaching this message or this series of messages? Is this preventative maintenance? No, it's not. I would not pull out of a, an expositional series through a book of the Bible just for preventative maintenance. I'm telling you, as the pastor of this church, we need this. We need this. The Apostle Paul was writing to a church in Philippi that, that apparently was having some kind of conflict. They weren't living in harmony. In fact, you look over to Philippians 4 verse 2 and Paul literally calls out two women in the church by name who are at odds with each other. Now, I don't know how to pronounce their names. You can ask Brother David. He'll tell you. So I'm going to read it and do my best. This is just how it makes sense to me. Philippians 4 verse 2. I beseech Yodius and beseech Syntyche. 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 Sin. That's her nickname. I beseech, I beg, I implore. I earnestly ask these two ladies, get along. Be of the same mind in the Lord. I'm not asking you just to be of the same mind. You don't have to agree on politics. You don't have to agree on standards. You don't have to agree on financial stewardship philosophy. You don't have to agree on how you should parent. I want you to have the same mind, what? In the Lord. I want you to agree on the gospel. I want you to agree on the Great Commission. I want you to agree on what really matters. These two women weren't getting along. I, I, my guess is they were fighting over whose name was worse. 
We, we don't know the nature of the conflict, but we know it was significant enough. And it was distracting enough for the Holy Spirit to tell Paul to mention it by name. I think this is why he wrote the verses in Philippians 2 that he did. He felt like this conflict had the potential of hurting the health of the church. And so he addresses it. And he teaches them and us four things in this passage. Number one, the right marks of, human, of, of harmony. Number two, the right means for harmony. Number three, the right motivations for harmony. Number four, the right model for harmony. Let's study together. Look at verse two. Paul says, fulfill ye my joy. Why would he start that way? Well, he says, it makes me happy when you get along. A church in harmony makes for a joyful pastor. That's not the essence of the text at all, but he was just honest with them. Fulfill you my joy, why? That you be like-minded, that's the goal. And then here's what it looks like. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Paul explains, I want you to live in harmony. I want you to be like-minded. Three marks of that are, are, are this. Have the same love, be of one chord, and be of one mind. I'm going to go to the piano and, and, and maybe illustrate what this might sound like. You could think of these three things as kind of a threefold harmonious chord. So he talks about the, the same love. That means you love each other the same. You you don't love each other with preferential love. Remember we talked about this morning that, that you're equally concerned for everybody within the, the body of Christ, right? That's the foundation of harmony is that you just love everybody the same. And, and then one accord. You work the same. You have different preferences and different opinions and different personalities, but you set aside those things and you work together as one body. We talked about that this morning. You got the same love. And you've got the same, or one accord. And then you've got one mind. You think the same. Meaning that everyone has the same goal in mind at the end of the day. That, that doesn't mean that, that you have to agree on everything all the time. But at the end of the day, you're working toward the same goal. To help people find and follow Jesus. That should be on the forefront of all of our minds. And, and this is how a church sounds when you're in harmony. It's beautiful. It's harmonious. A church that, that, that is, is harmonizing with each other is really a beautiful thing. You're of the same love. You're, you're of one accord. You're of, of one mind. You have the same spiritual goals. Now, here's the question. How is that achieved? How's that achieved? How do we as a church get to sounding that beautiful, that in harmony? When you have so many different people that call this their church family. How do we get along? Well, that's what Paul addresses in verses three and four. Look at it. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look, not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Verse two taught us the, the marks of harmony in the church. Same love, one accord, one mind. Verse three and four teach us the means for harmony in the church. How do we make that chord? According to these verses, the means through which spiritual unity is achieved, among believers at least, is humility. Did you catch that? Lowliness of mind. 
We could say it this way. There will be harmony in the church when there is humility in the people. That really is, I think, the essence of the entire text we're studying tonight. There will be harmony in the church when there's humility in the people. Let's talk about what this humility looks like. Paul said, when there's humility, verse number, verse number uh, three, then we won't do anything through strife or vain glory. Strife, if you study it, means selfish ambition. Vain glory is referring to vain conceit. One commentator put it like this, selfish ambition is what I want. Vain conceit is the reason I want it. So I want to be prominent, one church member says. That's selfish ambition. Why? Because I'm more deserving. That's vain conceit. I want others to yield to my opinion and to what I say and my preference. That's selfish ambition. Why does a church member want that? Because my opinion matters more than theirs. Vain conceit. I want this position in the church. Selfish ambition. Vain conceit, because I've been here longer than him. See, that leads to what I call an inharmonious congregation. It's not beautiful. You can't sing to it. It doesn't sound good. Nobody wants to be a part of it. Humility, however, is just the opposite. Paul said humility is when a church member has the lowliest of mind to esteem others better than themselves. Lowliness of mind. If you study that, it really is speaking about the mindset of a bond slave. That's what lowliness means. The, the mindset of a servant. You know a slave in that day had no rights? They really weren't even allowed to have an opinion? Obviously no one in here is a slave and shouldn't be treated like one. But we should have the humility of a slave toward each other. That's the point. Now, let me be clear. Paul isn't saying that humility is thinking less of yourself. He's saying humility is thinking of yourself less. And of others more. That's why he said in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. You know, that word better literally means more important. Paul used that same Greek word to describe how the Romans ought to think of the governing authorities that God had placed over them. Over them. It's a, police, a term of respect and honor. If you, you today were invited to be in a meeting with the president and his cabinet members, and if you were the only non-government official present in the room, you probably wouldn't carry yourself as though you're your most important one in the room. Even if you disagree with the president and his cabinet members. You would still be humble to be in the room. You would view them with a level of reverence and respect for the position they hold. Paul is saying that we ought to have the same reverence and respect toward other laymen that we go to church with. We ought to have such humility of mind that we view our brother and sister in Christ as we would view a, a high-ranking government official. We don't treat them as though they're less important than us. We don't carry ourselves in such a way that makes others in our church feel that they're beneath us. Then Paul says in verse 4 that we ought not to look out for ourselves or our, our own interests, but we ought to look out for the interest of others first. Here's what I found out. Every church member has their own preferences. And so does every pastor. Every church member has their own interest. 
things that they're personally passionate about, philosophies and, and principles and, and cultural issues that they want emphasized and preached about above others. Now, that's not a bad thing necessarily, but it becomes a bad thing when we elevate our interest in the church above others' interest in the church. And that's where humility comes in. Church members have to be willing to set aside their personal preferences and their personal opinions and their personal interests for the sake of spiritual unity in the body. Now, I want to put Paul's explanation of humility together and get practical for a minute. What does a humble church member look like in our church? I'm talking about a humble church member, one that has lowliness of mind, one that esteems others better than themselves, one that look out for the interest of others before their own. That kind of church member. I want you to see it in your mind. A humble church member refuses to make a big deal about things that, that don't go their way. A humble church member doesn't over-exaggerate the weakness of a decision they disagree with. A humble church member doesn't complain at home, doesn't complain in the foyer, and doesn't complain via text message to other church members about things in the church that don't meet their approval. A humble church member never sarcastically mocks others who have different preferences or interests. A humble church member doesn't leave a church, doesn't check out of a church, and doesn't step down from a ministry in church simply because a ministry leader disappointed them. Imagine how many pastors and staff members this church would go through if every time a church member disappointed us, we checked out. Or we got offended. Or we left the church. If it's not okay for ministry leaders to do that, it's not okay for church members to do that. We're all human. A humble church member works well with somebody in children's ministry or nursery ministry or security ministry or greeters ministry or music ministry, even when it's not their best friend in the world. And a humble church member submits to the expectations and policies of the ministry in which they serve. They're not rogue. They're not a maverick. A humble church member yields to the person who the pastor is appointed to lead that particular ministry, whether that be a staff member or another lay leader. I continue to be amazed by some church members who will only do what I ask them to do. A humble church member isn't pushing their agenda. You know why? They don't have one. And neither does a humble pastor. Humble church member isn't always battling thoughts of envy and jealousy and bitterness towards people in the church that get more attention or get asked to serve in a specific role that they desire to fill. That's battling those thoughts over and over and over as a pattern is not a symptom of humility. A humble church member doesn't always have to be in the know. They don't have to be in the room with those who are making decisions. You know why? They're just not overly concerned with getting their way. So it really doesn't matter. You can mark this down. Normally a church split or a dying church can be traced back to a person or a group of people that elevated their interest above the interest of others. People who viewed or a pastor that viewed their preferences as doctrine and didn't have the lowliness of mind necessary to respond to disagreements or disappointments in a charitable and godly way. And this all goes for the pastor and pastoral staff. 
I'm not just preaching to the people tonight. God expects me to lay aside my personal preferences and my personal opinions, if necessary, for the sake of spiritual unity. Some have the idea that because a man has the title pastor on his door and we voted him in and we pay him a salary, that he gets his way all the time and whatever he says goes no matter what anyone else thinks. Well, that's not right. I believe in the role of a lead pastor. I believe God has given me the responsibility and called me to lead this church and make difficult decisions when necessary. But it is never okay for me to lead solely out of my own passions or my own interests or my own preferences above those that I'm called to shepherd and to serve. It goes both ways. I've seen many a church harmed by a prideful pastor. I don't want to be one. You may be thinking, Pastor Tyler, I get it. I'm supposed to live in harmony with other believers by showing humility toward them. That makes sense. But you need to understand something. There are some people that I just can't live in harmony with around here. The most humility I can show toward them is simply to steer clear of them. If they're in the middle aisle, I'll take that aisle. Now, if that's going through your mind, I want you to consider the church that Paul's writing to. We're not going to go back there, but we're given a glimpse in Acts 16 of the kind of people that Paul started this church with. And they were really different from each other. Right. So in this section of of the ancient auditorium is a wealthy business owner named Lydia. She's like the charter member of this church. Go study it. She's the one that had her own business. She had a really big house and opened it up for Paul to start this church. She's kind of a prominent person, I imagine. Maybe has a big personality, can be kind of hard to get along with, dominates a a connection group discussion. In this section of the auditorium is a woman who used to be a slave girl before she got saved. She was demon possessed when Paul first met her. She was being sold by her oppressive owners to to predict their fortune. She, She might weird you out. She's not who she used to be, but she still carries some of the baggage with her to church and it's made her socially awkward. In this this section of the Philippian auditorium, it's a guy in the very back. He used to be a jailer. He's saved now and he serves on the security team. He's a little nicer than he used to be, but he's still rough around the edges. It's like he he doesn't really want anybody close to him and you can kind of just sense that on top of that if you're a member of that church he's the one that beat the founding pastor with a whip and locked him up in the stocks all night well he got saved his whole family got saved and baptized and it's a sweet little testimony but it's really hard to trust him based on what he did to your pastor see the philippians could have had some serious hesitations and objections when it came to showing humility and living in harmony. Don't think they had a perfect church. They had Yodius and and Sintiki. (laughs) Maybe that's why Paul started the chapter the way he did. He knew they would need some motivation. David's laughing at me. (laughs) I'm going to hear it on Tuesday at staff meeting. He's going to come with three Greek pronunciations. (laughs) I'm ready. I'm ready to learn. (laughs) Chapter 2, verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any bowels and mercies. Paul's taught us the right marks for harmony of the church, the right means for harmony of the church. Now he showed us if you're struggling with that, let me motivate you. Here's the right motivation for harmony in the church. 
Paul's teaching us, watch, in verse 1, that it's possible to live in harmony with other believers when we're motivated by what God has already done in us. Are you studying with me? Verse 1 says God has deposited some things in us that should come out of us toward those who are difficult to get along with. Notice that Paul uses the word if four times. When he writes the word if, he's not being uncertain or wondering if what he says is really true. It's a term of assumption. So it would be like me saying this, if it's my birthday, then I get to pick where we go to eat. Right? I could just as easily say, since it's my birthday, I get to pick where we eat. I think that's what Paul's meaning in verse 1. We could easily put the word since before all four of these declarations. Kind of like this. Since you've been consolated or since you've been encouraged in Christ. Since you've been comforted by God's love. Since you know what it's like to have the help of the Spirit of God in your life. Since you have God's mercy flowing in you at the deepest level. Since you have all these things in you, they can and should come out of you. In other words, God has made it possible for love to flow out of you because he has first put his love in you. He doesn't expect a lost person to show his love. He expects a child of God to show his love. God has made it possible for you to show mercy to others, for that to flow out of you because he has first shown mercy to you and put that in you. God has made it possible for you to encourage somebody that's even difficult or that it's draining or that it's just different. He has given you that kind of mercy and love and encouragement. It should come out of you. Why? Because he's deposited those things inside of you. Those are like free deposits at salvation. He's put these things in you. You've known the love of God. You've known the mercy of God. You know the empowerment of God. You know the encouragement of God. Now let that motivate you to let it flow out of you. And if that doesn't motivate you, well, then the last portion of the text should. Paul tells us about the, the right model for harmony, verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robber to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. And he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We're talking about the right model for harmony in the church. Now for us to really appreciate Christ is our example. We, we really need to break down those verses for a moment. He starts this way. Who being in the form of God. Before you can appreciate Christ's humility, you have to understand where he started. Are you getting me? You won't understand his dissension until you understand how high he was to begin with. In his very nature, he was the same as God. He was the creator. Jesus was all powerful. Jesus was all present. Jesus was all knowing. Jesus was eternal. Everything God 